The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Hello there, we're very warm welcome to another History of the World podcast magazine. Uh, we're just stalling because we're preparing the last special episode on historiography and I, I know I keep promising this but this time I think uh, we're going to be doing it next week and uh, I hope next week doesn't come and I still haven't completed the job but it's a, it's a bit of a task this one, I've got to be honest. Um I don't have a lot of expertise when it comes to historiography, so I've got to put myself on a crash course in order to make the episode authentic, so please do bear with me. But as ever, at the History of the World podcast, even when I fall behind on my work, there is still some entertainment for you. So every week we release something, and nowadays what we do is we release the History of the World podcast magazine. And all it is really, we just look back on years gone by in the podcast and revisit some of the stories that we enjoyed the first time round. So this time we've got three different uh, audio clips from previous episodes that we're going to play you. And um, it all relates to episodes that were going out uh, this time um, on previous years in the podcast. So, for example, the first clip that I've got for you was what was being listened to on this very date way back in 2018, in the first year of the podcast, five years ago. Now, when we were um, when we were presenting episodes back then, we were talking about the earliest human species. And um, in order to talk about them, we had to talk about how um, the last common ancestor between chimpanzees and humans, um, we had to talk about that kind of thing. And uh, the subsequent animals that um, inhabited the earth and whether they were similar in any way to animals that inhabit the, the earth at the moment. So we were talking about Australopithecines. Australopithecines are thought to be our direct ancestors. So before humans became human, this was the animal that you would expect to see most closely related to humans. But they've often been compared um, for their intellect to chimpanzees. Now, we don't know this for a fact. And what we did five years ago, we explored the possibility of whether Australopithecines communicated with each other or not, whether they had the intelligence and the cognitive ability to communicate with each other. And so we compared experiments from the 20th century done on chimpanzees to find out exactly how intelligent they were when it came to communication. So let's go back now and listen to some of the stories of those chimpanzee 
lingual training exercises and um, and talk about how that might have given us a clue about what our ancestors who were alive three million years ago were doing to communicate with one another. In the 1940s in Florida, in the United States, Keith and Catherine Hayes decided to raise a baby chimpanzee. They attempted to teach the chimpanzee, called Vicky, how to talk. They managed to teach Vicky how to say four words on her own. However, it was hard work, and hard work from very intelligent human teachers. The Australopithecines would not have had such intelligent teachers. So therefore, if Vicky didn't have the intelligence to verbally say words, then it is likely that Australopithecines would not have had the intelligence either. However, later on in the 1960s, still in America, but this time in Nevada, another young chimpanzee called Washo was being introduced to language, but this time sign language. Trixie and Alan Gardner were able to teach Washo around 300 signs. When you watch footage of Washo, there appears to be absolutely no doubt that Washo has the intelligence to use signs to convey her current mood and be able to visually understand signs directed towards her. She was able to form compound nouns to describe things, creating the phrase waterbird to describe a swan. She could also differentiate between contexts, so she could use the words in question form or statement form, using the nature of expression to signify which. If she was asking a question, she would pause at the end of her signing to indicate that she was looking for a response, in contrast to a much more definite signing when she wanted to make a statement. The one thought-provoking exercise carried out with Washo was that when she was asked who she could see in the mirror, she responded by signing me Washo, demonstrating an ability to recognise herself. Many scientists have believed that self-consciousness is something exclusive to humans. Washo had also taught signs to other chimpanzees, demonstrating that chimpanzees do actually have the capacity to enhance and evolve a language through the generations. This would strongly suggest that lingual communication between Australopithecines was an absolute possibility. The one thing that the chimpanzee cannot do very well is make the sounds that a modern human can make. But could the Australopithecines... We ought to look closely at what it is about modern humans that can make the wide range of sounds required to speak a modern language, because these same physical attributes do not appear to be present in chimpanzees, otherwise Washo would have certainly had the intelligence to speak if she had had the physical capability. If we were to assume that Australopithecines had the intelligence, then did they have the physicality? Our voices are created in a very general sense using acoustic noises made by our mouths and throats for the consonants and our larynx at the bottom of our throats to make the vowel sounds. 
The vowel sounds are very important due to the fact that these are the sounds that can be used at different volumes and we can also control the pitch of the vowels which accounts for our ability to say the same sentence completely understandably in a low voice or a high voice. The human larynx is clearly a very versatile vocal tool that is very well developed for our complex language. The larynx itself is made up of muscle, ligaments and cartilage but also one of the most important things is that it has at the top of it a hyoid bone. As we know, bones can become fossilised. So if we excavate a fossilised hyoid bone, then it could offer clues relating to the vocal capability of the animal which it came from. The problem is that the hyoid bone is not connected to any other bone in the human body. So it creates a problem when assessing its exact position and its exact position is quite important due to the fact that in modern primates the larynx is much higher in the throat than in humans and we believe that the lower position of the larynx in humans gives us a greater acoustic variety to our speech. The real fact of the matter is that human vocal production biology has altered so immensely that it has confused scientists about what could have happened and why. The vocal tract is directly linked to the airways needed for breathing. So any adaptation of this that we might suppose has facilitated language evolution may actually be linked to a simple necessity to breathe differently now that we have suddenly become upright runners since the evolution of Homo erectus. Add to this the strange anomaly that the male voice breaks during puberty quite dramatically compared to other primates when our sexual body mass dimorphism is less. So why does the male human voice need to break so dramatically? There are still a great deal of questions unanswered. Our second journey back to the past will take us back to the Indus Valley Civilization. Now, the Indus Valley Civilization is the oldest known civilization of the Indus River which uh, flows through Pakistan and we we talked about how advanced this remote culture was in terms of their artisanry and uh, some of the things that maybe we take for granted in Mesopotamia were certainly being created to a high standard in the Indus Valley and uh, the the People of the Indus Valley were also called the Harappans, not just the Indus Valley civilization. So let's go back and listen to some of the creations that have been discovered from this time period in this geographical region. Let's take a look at some of the artisanry of the Indus Valley civilization and see if it gives us any further clues about their day to day lives. For example, we referred to a clay item, which has been described as a toy. The item actually has multiple pieces, which are two bullocks and a cart with a driver. The cart sits on a two-wheeled axle. So those peoples of the Indus Valley were apparently utilising wheeled transport, pulled by beasts of burden which was quite an advanced technology, comparable to Mesopotamia and ahead of the Egyptians. 
these carts would have been extremely useful, bringing the ability to transport large amounts of materials and resources from one place to another. It could be the agricultural yield being transported to the granaries or the textiles of the workhouses being transported to the merchants. Large-scale movements of goods would have been essential to sustain the larger and widespread societies of the vast Indus Valley civilization. We can see similar activity in Mesopotamia, but in Egypt it seems that society was closely knit with the Nile, and large-scale movements of goods probably were more likely to travel by boat from one city to another. It appears that societies of the Indus Valley had an interest in the creation of jewellery. Gold neck chokers, which must have been made using intricate expert techniques such as granulation by the goldsmiths who created them, demonstrate a mastery of metallurgy. These same highly skilled techniques were used to create other types of jewellery, such as ear ornaments and gold bangles. Sometimes metals would be used alongside ivory, faience, seashells and gemstones to create necklaces, pendants, rings and anklets. We shouldn't feel too surprised about this though. All the earliest ancient societies loved jewellery. Visual style and class was something that was very important to the Indus Valley civilization, as well as the Sumerians, as demonstrated by the gold jewellery of Queen Puabi and the extensive hair decoration of the Minoan ladies depicted in their frescoes at Knossos. Jewellery can be traced back to a time long before the agricultural revolution and it is fascinating to see how much it meant to the ancient societies. The iconography of cultures is also something that can be traced back to a time before the agricultural revolution and is equally interesting to trace forward into the ancient societies. Artifacts that have been discovered at Indus Valley civilization sites, the bull was one popular mascot of the Harappans, which is similar to the Minoans. However, cattle would have been extremely important to these societies for their many agricultural uses. Some seals depict an animal with a cattle head, but a solitary horn protruding from the centre of its head. It has been speculated that this is the earliest depiction of the mythological unicorn, a creature which the classical Greeks believed lived in the far-off lands of the Indus. However, it could just be an interpretation of a side-on view of a two-horned oryx simply depicted with one horn due to the invisibility of the second horn behind it. I am sorry that these statements insinuate the non-existence of the unicorn to all of you unicorn lovers. Now then, if we take the opportunity now to go back and speak of the gold bangles of the Indus Valley artisans, then this brings us very nicely to one of the most well-known human artefacts of this civilization. It has been called the Dancing Girl, 
and it dates to around 2500 BCE and it was excavated in the city of Mohenjo-Daro. It is a bronze sculpture made using the lost wax process, which is a process described way back in episode 18 of volume 1 on metallurgy. So the shape of the bronze sculpture was originally made from wax, before being encased in clay, heated until the wax liquefied, leaving a cavity in the clay which could then be filled with molten bronze before the clay was broken away from the solidified sculpture. The girl is not necessarily dancing, so I think we should disregard that description. She stands with her right hand on her hip and her left arm holding an object, but interestingly her left arm is covered from top to bottom with bangles. She wears few bangles on her other arm, and a necklace. We have no idea who created this sculpture or what she represents, but we do know that there has been a similar bronze statuette that has been discovered in Mohenjo-Daro, a little lacking in the same quality, but nonetheless similar. The dancing girl of Mohenjo-Daro does create a lot of questions, however, due to her unusual nature. Now, we love talking of prehistoric and ancient women depicted with very voluptuous hourglass figures, and by and large we do find Indus Valley artefacts made from stone and ceramics who also have the same accentuated hips and breasts that we may expect to find from ancient female figurines. The dancing girl does not have such an accentuated figure though. The explicitly detailed body demonstrates that she is wearing no clothing apart from her jewellery, but she is unusually lean and slender with humble hips and breasts and seemingly elongated limbs. Being made from bronze is also quite unusual by comparison. Some have speculated that she may represent an African lady, but the truth is that there's really no way to tell with what we know. Another iconic statue discovered in Mohenjo-Daro is made from soapstone, also known as steatite. Soapstone is a metamorphic type of stone and was popular as a material for Indus Valley sculptures. The sculpture in question, once again, is surrounded by mystery, and not least of all because it has been named the Priest King. In a land where temples and palaces seem to not exist as they do in Mesopotamia, Egypt and the Aegean. The sculpted upper torso and head of a bearded man wearing a robe over one shoulder. In Mesopotamia, Egypt and even Mycenaean Greece, we have some written artefacts that can offer clues about the meaning of life. We do also have what appears to be written script in the Indus Valley, but we often find it on clay tablets accompanying images of animals, shamanic deities and mythological creatures such as what is potentially our modern day unicorn. The script 
has not been deciphered, however, so it is currently meaningless. So we just have those things that are observable to the eye and our subsequent supposition. So that was from four years ago, and our final dip back into history takes us back to the stories that we were telling three years ago. And in the last couple of weeks, when we've revisited past episodes, we've spoken quite a lot about Hannibal Barker, the Carthaginian military general. And we talked about his glorious escapades when he crossed the Alps and when he defeated the Romans famously at the Battle of Cannae. Unfortunately, though, for Hannibal, his number came up when he returned back to Africa and he was challenged by the glorious military general of the Romans, Scipio. And we're going to go back now and find out exactly what happened at that fateful Battle of Zama, which uh, featured quite a lot of elephants. Scipio would have had the Roman massacre at Cannae and the death of his father and uncle on his mind when in North Africa. In 202 BCE, the Battle of Cannae was now 14 years in the past, so this moment was a long time coming. Many members of Scipio's army would have also had bitter memories of Cannae and would have relished the potential taste of sweet revenge. As mentioned before in the lead-up to the fateful battle, Scipio would have also have had to have considered King Syphax of the western Numidian tribe of the Masisali, an ally of the Carthaginians. He would deal with the Syphax by befriending his eastern Numidian rival, King Masinissa of the Masili tribe. Masinissa would defeat Syphax in battle and unite Numidia, taking an important Carthaginian ally off of the game board. The arrival home of Hannibal would have lifted the hopes of the Carthaginians who had experienced nothing but bad fortune in the last few years. If anyone was going to turn their fortunes around, it would be Hannibal. Hannibal would arrive back in North Africa and begin to assemble an army once more. Like Scipio, Hannibal would bring his wily veterans from the days of Cannae across the Mediterranean Sea with him. He would also assemble a force of 80 war elephants, which is more than the Romans had ever faced. The Carthaginian army would also contain conscribed citizens of Carthage to support the veterans. Some would be carrying the Sarissa spear, which would have been similar to the ones used by the phalanx hoplites of Alexander the Great in the previous centuries Macedonian campaigns in Persia. Other members of the army were armed with the Falcata, which is a heavy sword believed to have been originally created by the people of Iberia, and it would have been loved by Hannibal, not least of all because it was rumoured to be strong enough to cut through a Roman shield. Hannibal would put his cavalry on the flanks, but this time Scipio would ensure that the Roman cavalry was not outnumbered as they were at Cannae. 
Once again, Scipio would have his veteran soldiers trained in Sicily who would have likely remembered the embarrassing and deadly defeat at Cannae. Scipio would also have mercenary infantry but would take advantage of the Numidian influence by utilising their cavalry alongside his own. Scipio would be all too aware that when Hannibal scored that unlikely victory at Cannae that the strength in numbers of the Carthaginian cavalry would have been a key factor in eliminating the Roman cavalry and providing a route behind the enemy to enable them to be encircled. Also, Scipio had spent a lot of time personally training his army in Sicily before travelling to North Africa, while Hannibal is likely to have had to have hastily put together a similar size force. The Battle of Zama For Hannibal, much of his success was thanks to the choice of when to utilise his best assets. This time, he decided that the tactical use of the 80 war elephants would be vital. War elephants have been described as the ancient era's war tank, designed to thunder into enemy lines, causing mass destruction of the ranks. So Hannibal believed that it would disrupt the discipline of the Romans by sending the elephants charging into their lines. The main issue with elephants is that they are not cold and mindless tanks. They are animals capable of being emotionally affected. Scipio introduced a class of soldiers called the Velites, who primarily were the frontline mercenaries armed with wooden darts. When the elephants advanced, the Velites would allow the elephants to get among their ranks by allowing them to come through their lines. Once inside the lines, they would attack the elephants. Some of the elephants would be freaked out and even stampede back into the Carthaginian infantry. Other elephants would simply be eliminated while being surrounded by mercenary Velites. This was the opening exchange, but all too often in these exchanges, the deployment of the cavalry would prove to be a highly important factor. Whether or not Hannibal planned to utilise his cavalry as a key part of getting the upper hand in the battle, or whether he pinned his hope on his war elephants causing enough disarray to exploit, Scipio would not wait to find out. With the charge of the elephants absorbed, Scipio released his cavalry under the command of King Masinissa of the Numidians on the right-hand flank. And Scipio's longtime trusted military ally, Gaius Lelius, commanding the Roman cavalry on the left-hand flank. Scipio had got it right. He had dealt with Hannibal's initial elephant charge and then deployed his cavalry at just the right moment in order to prevent a repeat of Cannae where Hannibal effectively won the battle using his cavalry to open the door to victory. The Carthaginian cavalry was no match for the numerous, well-organised and capably commanded cavalry and Scipio found himself in control of the battle following these two early phases. 
The battle was still far from over though, with both sets of infantry still to engage. Both sets of infantry, the Romans and the Carthaginians, had put their experienced infantry behind the front lines. The mercenary velities of the Roman front line initially engaged with the Carthaginian front line mercenaries. It would be the Sicilian trained Roman veterans who would start getting the upper hand and this caused Hannibal to elongate his formation in a bid to emulate the earliest exchanges at Cannae where Hannibal attempted to surround the enemy front line. Scipio anticipated this move and matched it by elongating his own front line and preventing Hannibal from gaining that same advantage. Basically, every tactical move that Hannibal attempted was matched or nullified by Scipio. It would be a matter of time before the Roman and Numidian cavalry would return from their successful pursuits and exchanges with the Carthaginian cavalry and this would be the decisive moment. There was absolutely no way that the Carthaginian infantry would be able to continue the battle with the Roman infantry and defend themselves against the Roman and Numidian cavalry who were now attacking them from the rear. The Carthaginians were thrown into a disorganised mess and now the Romans were able to take revenge for the massacre at Cannae 14 years ago. As Carthaginians were being slaughtered on the battlefield, Hannibal realised that the day was lost and made the tough decision to flee the battlefield. He knew that he would need to go to Carthage and advise them to surrender. Roman historians suggest that more than 20,000 Carthaginians were slaughtered on the battlefield. Thank you very much for listening to this week's History of the World podcast magazine. And um, this was um, this was made just basically because we're uh, constructing the next special episode before going back to the normal episodes of Volume 4. So we'll look forward to getting back to those where we get back into the medieval story of India before moving over to the Far East. Um, if you enjoy the podcast and you would like to support the podcast, then just go straight to our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and click on the Patreon link. Go and sign up to make a monthly contribution for as little or as much as you like and you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Um, as has um, Brad Jolly this week. Brad Jolly now a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Welcome along, Brad. Um, you can uh, qualify for gifts and rewards if you uh, if you sign up to become a member of the 
History of the World podcast Illuminati. Go along and have a look. You'll get gifts through the post and opportunities. And you don't have to sign up to make a huge monthly contribution. If you, uh, if you accumulate the correct amount over an amount of time, you can qualify for any of the gifts on offer. Now, if you want to access bonus material and you would like to listen to the podcast ad-free, then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. You get uh, Your bonus material comes earlier than it does for the Patreon members who get theirs a week after. So uh, an extra little incentive to consider that. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, you can... The easiest way is to drop me a line at History of the World Podcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. Now, I've been attempting to tackle this for some time and I've been putting it off and I really shouldn't put it off. I should just get straight into it. Um, Steve Williams, History of the World Podcast Illuminati member, has asked a question. He's put, hi, Chris. First, I want, uh, I just wanted to compliment you on the show. I have enjoyed it immensely. Thank you so much for all the time and effort you have put into it. As for my question, I know medieval Europe was dominated by the feudal system, but I was wondering if there were any times and places in medieval Europe that had traditions or institutions which could be described as democratic for example did commoners ever elect their own local leaders or were those always political appointees that came down from the ruling nobles do we have any any evidence that people would avoid the official court systems and choose their own methods or mediation and conflict resolution And it seems guilds had a lot of power back then. Did individual guild members have any say in how those rules were laid down? Or did the guild leaders just strong arm everyone into following along? Thank you. Anything you could say on this topic would be appreciated. Steve Williams. Well, Steve, uh, thank you for asking me such a tough question. I suppose... It all starts with what our definition of democracy really is. And democracy is a bit of an abstract term, isn't it? It's uh, what we view it as these days, really, is um, maybe something a bit like uh, most um, countries that have an electoral system where the public the citizens of that country go and vote for who they want to rule that country. Well, that's quite a modern concept. People, actual common people voting for who they want their leaders to be. It's a very, very modern concept. And then when people talk about democracy and the beginnings of democracy, a lot of fingers are pointed towards ancient Greece because that was really one of the first places where we see evidence of a an election made by a large number of peoples. But to be quite honest with you, the election of officials wasn't done by the common people there. So is that correct to call that a true democracy or not? But I have a book on my bookshelf that I've had for some time called The Shortest History of Democracy, written by John Keane. And 
I'm going to I'm going to lean on his book really for a bit of advice here. So um, when we talk about uh, ancient Greece being the birthplace of democracy, we're actually talking about something called assembly democracy, which is not really uh, quite the same as the electoral democracy. So it's really just um, the election of an assembly by peers, if you like. And we can see this throughout ancient history in actual fact. So the Phoenicians were doing similar things and, um, you know, it may have been that other societies of Mesopotamia maybe or, or Mycenaean Greece were doing similar sorts of things. So really to point towards ancient Greece as the birthplace of democracy might be doing a uh, an injustice to other societies uh other older societies really and um you know it's not uncommon for um ways of life or ways of rulership to be borrowed from other cultures who are seen to be successfully doing the same thing so um but it really wasn't quite the same thing it didn't really last last assembly democracy because it's sort of a this whole idea of a a you know a a uh, council like that existed in the Roman Republic it it came and it went so it wasn't really the ideal solution um as we see it just didn't survive into the first millennium really anything like that so and but when we talk about medieval history what signs of there of democracy um not a lot not a lot at all really um, but um, in the feudal system, the lords had a bit of power for themselves, really. So there was no real need to elect kings or political leaders because there wasn't that sort of nation state structure in medieval history that we know today. So on a national level, there really wasn't a lot in the way of democracy as we might refer to it today. Another way to look at democracy really is to sort of see it in in the manner of um, assemblies making democratic decisions about the direction of things. So it might be that uh, you don't get a monarch who's making decisions. You might get an assembly making decisions like in ancient Greece. But um, we do see like one of the earliest governments um, or one of the earliest parliaments uh, that exist is the is the one in Iceland the Althingi um, which uh, we often refer to as the Althing in in England um, is the is the parliament of Iceland and it's uh, said to be um, the um, the oldest surviving parliament or that or, or Icelanders claim it to be the oldest surviving parliament in the world and uh, but it wasn't unusual to have this kind of um, assembly sort of style of, of decision making um, in Anglo-Saxon England we see often ref references to the Witan being um the people who elect the leaders of the country if there's no um, consensus on who should be the leader so it might be the Witan who um, who support the election of the English king for example so we see that and we see that ingrained in English history where the lords um, of 
you know, or the, or, or the, the local lords or the landowners have considerable swing. And uh, even when you get um, kings that are not popular, such as King John in 1215, we see this rise of the of the Magna Carta, which is the nobles um, dictating to their king en masse. So there, there, there's clearly some kind of um, there's some kind of parliament and some kind of democratic decision being made about what should be done on a national level. The only other real large scale um, one that I came across was this, um, and we've and we stumbled across it during the podcast. Is this um, the investiture controversy between um, the the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, where um, you can, where you can see in medieval Europe that um, people were electing bishops, and the bishops would um, sort of elect other bishops. So that that would be maybe another instance of um, some form of electoral democracy, but um, ultimately to create an assembly. Um, so. There's not a lot there, really, Stephen, for me to go by. Maybe someone has got some intricate expertise that I don't have that can maybe shed some light on individual aspects of democracy. And I think um, I think you would maybe need someone who has studied this at a very uh, a very um, intricate level to be able to answer that question. But like as a brief overview, as brief as I can do it in the time that I've got. Um, maybe they're the instances where you could argue uh, a democratic um, style of decision making happened during the medieval period, but it was that it was a long way from the democratic election of leaders that we see in today's world. So, but maybe maybe one of the listeners out there knows a bit more about it than I do, which would be interesting. In like, and I'd encourage you to write in, and we can. We can discuss it again on a future episode. Anyway, thank you for such an interesting and uh, very well considered question, Stephen. And uh, I hope I, I'm, you know, I hope I did answer it to some uh, some competent degree, even if I if I wasn't uh, expertly uh, educated on that subject. Um, anyway, that's all for this week. Thank you so much. And next week, I'm really, really going to try hard to get this episode done. It's been, it's really been a tough episode. I I might even struggle to get it done for next weekend. Um, but I'm uh, I'm going to make sure that I do it as properly as I can. It's just such a lot of information to fit into such a short amount of time. But ultimately, it's been very interesting. It's been a good education for me. So hopefully, it will be uh, hopefully it will be interesting to listen to when it finally does come out. Anyway, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and until next week, be good. The history of the world podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. See you next time.